Okay, I, I'm curious, just by a show of hands, how many of you, if you had the money, would go out and buy a self-driving Tesla tomorrow? Okay, there are some of you. Okay, there's some courageous people. Uh, well, think about it before you do. Uh, of course, it's, it's a little more than I can afford. But on the uh, webpage, The Verge, Emma Roth reported... Uh, Tesla's latest beta test kicked off in January. It's the full self-driving beta, FSD. Now, when you look it up, you find out that Tesla now gives you three driving profiles from which you can choose. And it dictates how your car will react in certain situations on the road. They use really technical terms for the for the profiles okay chill average and assertive yeah see I'd, I probably could end right there and you kind of get the idea behind it uh, these three profiles vary in terms of aggressiveness um, I like Yahoo's reference to it in other words the software now lets you decide how much of a jerk you want to be on the road well, maybe that's not what they intended, but when you look at an image posted by Tesla to Twitter, you can get an idea uh, about the, uh, these modes. Assertive option, Tesla notes, if you're driving, if you're letting the car drive in the assertive mode, it will have smaller follow distance, it will perform more frequent lane changes, the vehicle also may not exit a passing lane once you're there, and it may perform rolling stops. Okay. Chill, on the other hand, larger follow distance, fewer speed lane changes, and uh, average mode means you'll have medium space between, but it still may perform rolling stops. Now, we don't know how this will all work out in the real world over time. But the reality is that assertive mode, and some of you may be assertive drivers. I like that it doesn't use the word aggressive, but that's what they're saying. Uh, assertive driving can be difficult no matter what kind of car you're in. If I decide that's the way I want to drive, my Mitsubishi Mirage can become a death trap for all around me. So, we have a problem. Now, why do I bring this up? Because, folks, we are wired at birth for the assertive profile. We're, why do I say that? Because when we enter into this world, we enter into the world controlled by the flesh. I want what I want, and I want it now. And so we buzz through life trying to get what we want, sometimes in desperate measures. Now, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, when we come as children of faith, we can find, if we allow the Spirit to do what He wants in our lives, He can move us from assertive to chill. Maybe not 100% of the time. Uh, some of us still struggle with that flesh, but it is a change that can happen. Today we're looking at 
whether or not we want to be chill or assertive. Do we want to live by the Spirit or the flesh? And that's the concept of our passage today. So I'm gonna, we're going to read from Galatians 5, 17 through 26, and I would ask you to stand in honor of the Word. And listen very carefully, because this is deep truth Paul is giving today. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passion and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In our text, the Apostle Paul made a very clear contrast between the works of this flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He's showing, and he begins by saying, they contradict each other. They confront each other. So in our text this morning, Paul showed in absolute terms the battle that raged in the world at large between flesh and spirit. It was a battle that no Christian could afford to ignore. So he makes a great deal of importance here. And the battle of this in the flesh and spirit can also be found in the book of Romans. Uh, You might want to write this down on your notes. Romans 7, verses 7 through 25. I encourage you sometime this week to go and read that passage, Romans 7, verses 7 through 25, and you will hear Paul's personal struggle between flesh and spirit. Now, we saw in chapter 5, verse 13, that the idea of flesh in Galatians is not talking about your body. It's talking about everything within you that keeps you from being what God wants you to be. So Paul is giving them very serious truth. And this battle between the flesh and the spirit continues to rage even to today. And we, looking at this text, need to understand we will either live lives that honor God or dishonor God. So how do we choose? How do we make a decision? How do we live lives that honor? Well, we need to take a look and see what Paul said, the realities that he laid out in front of us, and then let it guide those realities, guide us. So, right off the bat, the the sinful nature of the human heart is destructive. There's a reason I've chosen a skull as the image, 
because we're told the wages of sin, which is a rea- uh, an explanation or an outpouring of what it means to walk in the flesh, it is death. The sinful nature of the human heart is destructive. Now, to help them understand that, Paul gave a careful but not exhaustive list of the works of the flesh. How do I know they're not exhaustive? That he could have talked about more? Because at the end of his list, did you notice he ended with orgies? And then he says, and the like. Paul is wanting him to see, he has not said every way the flesh can ruin your life. It can do many different things. And the work of the flesh, the fact that they are works of the flesh, point out, folks, When we live that way, it is at our feet. We have made choices to surrender to the flesh within us. They're the results of human insistence that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When the serpent said, if you eat that fruit, you won't die, you'll be like God. And he thought, that's what I want. We don't need God. That's the flesh. Timothy George said, from the Tower of Babel to modern totalitarianism, from Aaron's golden calf to contemporary idols of money, sex, and power, the works of the flesh have littered the human landscape with misery, violence, and death. Now, as we look at this, most scholars notice that Paul puts these in groups. And while the groups have been debated, they follow pretty much in a, a, a category of types of sin, types of the work of the flesh. So he begins with th- three sensual passions, three sins that deal with that issue of lust, that issue of desire. And he begins with sexual immorality. By the way, these three sins are the ones that grab our attention the most. These are the ones we want to talk about. These are the ones we want to condemn. These are the ones we get very, very, very self-righteous about. Uh, And I don't believe that Paul talks about these sins first because they are inherently more evil than the others. But folks, remember, he says the works of the flesh are obvious. They're out there for all to see. These are very graphic examples of what it means to live in the flesh. So sexual immorality. By the time of Paul's writing, this included all forms of illicit sexual behavior. Whether it happens before marriage, it happens in marriage through infertility, uh, any time of breaking what God says is the the right use of sexuality, that's what he means by uh, sexual immorality. Whatever form it takes, A broad picture. When you abuse sex, when you move it out of God's realm, you're walking in sin. And then, he deals with impurity. And impurity deals with the idea of uncleanness. The the change in your life, uh, the, the wedge that is driven between you and God when you are unclean. If you remember in the Old Testament, under the Levitical codes, certain things made you unclean and you could not worship God. You could not go into the tabernacle. You could not go to the temple and worship. You had to go through a process of cleansing. This is the idea here. 
And the interesting thing about impurity, this is a broad enough term that it deals not with just, you don't actually have to commit the act. If you're holding it in your heart and in your your mind and reliving and thinking, it can drive a wedge between you and God. And then debauchery. Folks, that word just sounds bad, doesn't it? That's, That's one of those cacophonous words. It sounds bad. Well, it really is bad. William Barclay defined it, a love of sin so reckless and so audacious that a man has ceased to care what God or man thinks of his actions. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to get the pleasure I want. I don't care who it hurts. I don't care who thinks I'm a horrible person. I'm going to go out there and live my lust out to the full. Jeremiah talked about that centuries before the Apostle Paul. In Jeremiah 6.15, talking about the state of, of sinfulness in Judah, he wrote, Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. They're so controlled by their lust, they just don't care anymore. So Paul starts off with the three sensual passions. And then he moves to two religious sins. He starts off with idolatry. And idolatry was very simple. The pagan worship of false gods. And it was rampant in Paul's day. Interestingly, the word idolatry, if you look for the word translated idolatry here in classical Greek language, in secular Greek, you wouldn't find it. This is a word that is specifically Christian in behavior. It is unique to the vocabulary of the New Testament. It takes a concept from the Old Testament and brings it into the New. Often, Pagan worship involves sexual immorality, which may give a hint why in the Old Testament when God's talking about Israel's idolatry, he often calls it adultery. You're being unfaithful to me. So here's this idea of worshiping false gods. And before you think, well, I don't worship Baal and I don't worship... Folks, we have our own idols today. And then he talked about witchcraft, which... Uh, you may find this fun. Uh, the word translated witchcraft is pharmakia. If that sounds kind of familiar, that's where we get our word pharmacy. And it means drugs. And in the ancient world, drugs were used to induce trances. Drugs were used to, indul- to induce uh, harmful things to folks. And the basic idea was here, It involves all areas of the occult. Any form of divination. If you're trying to find out something secret by referencing any, the the roll of a dice, the Ouija board, tarot cards, whatever, that is forbidden in the Word of God. No divination. And drugs were used to enhance the experience and to move them further into the occult. So those two sins, idolatry and witchcraft, Then eight sins of animosity. Eight sins that break the idea, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, I, find, I do find it inter- interesting. I just have to, to point this out. Whereas we tend to zero in on sexual sin being so horrible, it's interesting to me that Paul spends more time and gives more examples of when we sin against each other than he does in any other category in this sin. So we need to understand the impact of this. Uh, Emil Bruner, theologian of days gone by, said, the whole of human existence is built upon the fact that man cannot live as a solitary individual. In other words, when God said it's not good for man to be alone, he meant it. We need each other. We need the connection. So when I start violating the connection I have with you, when I start abusing my relationship with you or any other human being, I am eating at the very heart of who we are as people. So what are they? Well, the first one's fairly easy for us. Hatred. Sometimes translated as enmity. In Romans 8, 7, Paul used the same word to talk about the human heart hating the ways of God. Here, it's talking about the hatred that comes in relationship. When I'm upset, I'm angry, and now I've gone from loving you to hating you and wanting what is bad to happen to you. Hatred inevitably leads to our second sin of discord. This word is unique to Paul. He's the only one who uses it in the New Testament. And he uses it nine times in his letters. Remember, Paul's writing to churches, and on nine occasions, he's talking about discord to churches because he knows they're fighting. He knows they're bringing up problems in, with each other. And it, it, it means that they were harming the cause of Christ. The NEB, the New English Bible, translates this word, discord, I like this, contentious Temper. I love our expression, we lost our temper. I think we find it. And when we do, we attack. And it is harmful and it is hatred. And it deals with all of the kind of fightings that you have among the body of Christ. Then jealousy. Jealousy can be used in the Bible in a good sense. Uh, the word jealousy is used to describe God. I am a jealous God. And what God meant by that, I brought you out of Egypt, and I'm not going to share you with anyone. Normally, well, always, when it's talking about human jealousy, it's a bad connotation. The jealous person is someone who wants what other people have. Jealousy often can lead to bitterness. It can sometimes break out in violence. Remember Joseph, the Old Testament? His brother's Jealousy led him to throw him into a pit and sell him as a slave. Jealousy. It has, it's been pointed, and this is, hear this carefully. At the heart of jealousy is a basic posture of ingratitude. Because when I want what you have, I'm telling God, I'm not happy with what you gave me. And I've turned from a heart that says, Lord, thank you for whatever blessings I have, to God, you owed me more. Ingratitude. 
And then, fits of rage. In Revelation, it's use of God's wrath being poured out upon the world of sin. In Galatians, it's talking about human outbursts of anger. Outbursts of hostile feeling. When we're screaming, we begin screaming at each other and seeking to harm each other. Then, ambition, and specifically selfish ambition. The beginnings of this word is interesting because it originally meant running for political office. You're seeking office. But behind this idea, selfish ambition, I want to get ahead in life and I will use you if I need to. I will tell you whatever you need to hear so you'll help me get what I want. Because it's all about me. I'm the most important person on earth. Dissensions. This is a human... Folks, this is so human. It it almost goes without saying. This is the us against them mentality where we begin to see the, see the enemy as someone to trounce, to destroy objects of wrath. If there are dissensions in a church, it will lead eventually to split. Remember, Paul already warned the, the Galatians about their backbiting, backbiting, mutual destruction. You're going to eat each other up. You'll destroy one another. And behind all of this attack within the body of Christ is the idea of dissension that ultimately leads to factions. Factions carrying the same idea of a split. But here, the the focus of this word is on choice. We have chosen. I don't like what your ideas are, so I now have chosen to align myself with people who will help me win the battle between the two of us. We're going to divide up. Paul pointed out in in Corinthians, some of you say you're of Paul, some of you say you're of Peter, some of you say, oh, we're of Jesus. Envy. Which is very similar to jealousy, only interestingly, in the original language, jealousy is singular. Envy is plural, envyings. And I think what Paul is bringing out is when we want what other people have, when we are jealous, when we are full of envy, there are a lot of different ways we can find to reach into somebody's life and make them miserable because they've got something we don't. Finally, Paul addresses two self-indulgent sins. Drunkenness. And folks, it shouldn't be a surprise that drunkenness, alcohol abuse was prevalent in the Roman Empire and it destroyed lives. Alcohol abuse has been a part of every society that has ever discovered how to ferment fruit to make alcohol. Drunkenness. This isn't talking about moderation. This is outright drunkenness. And Paul may have had in mind, because in the Roman world, drunkenness was also often related to worship. 
the mystery religions, Dionysus, Dionysus, the god of wine. When you go to worship him, you get drunk. And it was problematic because it, it involved sexual sin, it involved abuse, it involved hurting of other people. And Paul points to that. And then, a word that I'm sure you wish were translated somewhere, something else, orgies. And it has been translated as revelings and carousing, but we don't kind of use those words too much anymore. But the thing is, this sexual sin, this deviation of sex is almost always, this word almost always connected to alcohol abuse. Again, I've, we're getting drunk, the party's going on, and we're just drinking more and more, and before we know it, all of our inhibitions are gone, and we're doing immoral acts. Look, this is a big list. Fifteen different sins, all associated with the flesh. And when we allow our hearts to be led by the flesh, it opposes what the Spirit desires to do in us. <clears throat> Verse 17 says uh, that the, sin, the flesh, sinful nature, and the Spirit are contrary. And he says they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. There are two possible meanings, interpretations of this. And we're going to look at the first. Because what Paul may well be seeing, and I think he is, as Christians, remember, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who've been born of the Spirit. And he's saying, when you allow the flesh to control you, then the good things the Spirit wants to do in your life are hampered. You don't listen to the Spirit. You don't do. And I believe that in every child of God, every true child of God, there's a desire at some level, I want to be the person God wants me to be. But when I'm living by the flesh... It's not going to happen. We cannot do the good we want to do. We've heard his call. We've known his love. We see what we're supposed to be. But if we allow the flesh to have a dominant role in our lives, our good intentions will not be met. In the book of Romans, Paul said when he raises the issue, so do we sin, so God will be Grace will be seen more and more. So don't you know that when you offer yourselves to somebody to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. If we hope to become the people God wants us to be, this can only happen when we, we must decidedly choose to crucify the nature within us. We must decide to crucify the sinful nature. A word that is not used much anymore in Christian circles is the word mortification. Occasionally you'll find it. But what it means is to put something to death. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice that's past tense. When I became a Christian, Christ caused me to die to self. Christ created a brand new person here. But here, it's not passive. This isn't, God has done this in me. He says, Christians, true believers of God, have crucified the flesh within themselves. This is important for us to understand. 
We are the agents who make the choice. Lord, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to constantly be failing you. Teach me what it means to crucify myself. Teach me what it means to say no in your strength and your power. John Stott likening this crucifixion of self to Roman crucifixion says, when we decide I want to die to my sinful nature, it needs to be, our rejection needs to be pitiless. The Roman crucifixion was, was used for the worst of criminals. Except for Jesus, only the really horrible people got crucified. And we need to understand the flesh is not something that we should encourage. We need to know it needs to die. And that will be painful. Just as crucifixion is a painful act, saying goodbye to the what is called in Hebrews 11.25, the pleasures of sin, it means giving up something we enjoy. And that hurts, whether we like it or not. And it needs to be decisive. We need to, to, to open ourselves up. God, change me. Let me die to myself. See, when you came to Christ, you repented. You recognized your sin was keeping you from God. You said, I don't want this. I want to turn to you. Well, folks, somewhere down the line, we forgot that idea. And we no longer look at sin with the horror that it should bring us. So God, help me learn what it means to crucify myself to you. To be willing to take up my cross and follow you daily. So that's the works of the flesh. One side of the coin. The other, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit the Spirit brings produces life in fullness. Now Paul's going to give another list. And I really do love the expression that is used here. The fruit of the Spirit brings, produces life in its fullness. Well, Paul starts off a list. And that list has been called a catalog of grace. So Paul listed a catalog of grace that demonstrated the lifestyle meant for those indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He said, this is the life God intends for you to live. And he just goes down through a list, a beautiful, wonderful, amazing list of grace. And as it works out, please notice it is the works of the flesh. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Singular. Paul is looking at the fruit as a collective whole. All different aspects of the fruit that God wants to produce in our lives. So, we again see clusters of grace. And we begin with, there are nine Christian graces in three groups of three. So, three different categories. And we begin with a category, attitudes linked to God. So the very first fruit of the, the Spirit is the word love. Now, in this sense, Paul is talking about loving each other. But folks, the love that we have for one another grows out of our love for God and God's love for us. He showered His love on us. He created us when He didn't have to. Someone has said we were a completely superfluous creation. God didn't need us, but He wanted us. 
And even knowing the cross was ahead of his son, he created us, knowing we would sin, knowing we would be redeemed. And that selfless act of sacrifice, him dying in our place, shows us what love should be. Love that is self-sacrificial. Love that says, I will put your needs first. Love that says, I will care and try to nurture you. It's not about feeling. It's about an action of godliness toward one another. Joy. And Christian joy is connected to hope because, folks, joy is not happiness. Happiness means everything in my life has got to be going right. Joy carries the hope even when life is horrible. I know that God's got me. God loves me. And it produces in me a joy. Peace. If joy is not dependent upon good circumstances, peace is not dependent on no conflict. Paul was Hebrew. And at the back of his mind, peace is shalom. And shalom is wholeness. Shalom is completeness. It's living life in a, in a sense of well-being because we are in the hands of God. And that peace can come. In such a way, Paul describes it to the Philippians, it's a peace that passes understanding. The world doesn't get it. How can you have peace? You're dying. How can you have peace? You've lost everything. Because I've not lost my God. And I have not lost His love for me. Peace. Love, joy, peace. Beautiful things that should describe our lives. Peace where we are not just experiencing peace ourselves, not just experiencing joy ourselves, we are wanting other people to know our joy. Through our joy, it becomes contagious. Through the peace we know, it causes other people to seek out what we have. Through the love God showers through us, they can learn of God's love. And we're reaching out and we're loving God. And as we love God, it starts reaching out to other people. Then attitudes link specifically to one another. And this is the one, even our little kids, which is the hardest? Patience. Because folks, this is not patience of living through hurricane season. This is not patience of trying to get through your, your the whatever you're facing in life and illness, whether it be COVID or flu, the symptoms. It's not, oh, I just got to wait till it's all over. This is specifically patience with other people. And again, it's seen in God. One of my favorite terms for God is that He is long-suffering. He puts up with us far more than we could ever wish. And Paul says you need to have that patience with each other. If you have that kind of patience, then maybe you won't launch into hatred. He talks about kindness. And this isn't just, oh, let's join hands and sing Kumbaya. This is an act deeper. The same word translated kindness here is translated when Jesus says, 
when you labor and are heavy laden, come to me. Take upon my yoke because it is easy. It's the same word. It doesn't chafe. It doesn't hurt. The idea is a goodness. The idea is a sweetness toward one another. Just going out of the way to be kind. And folks, we need this gift being exercised today desperately. Goodness. Again, this is another word that doesn't show up in secular Greek. It only belongs in the Bible. And it carries the idea of benevolence. Helping people. It carries the idea of generosity towards someone. It is the idea of going the extra mile when you don't have to. When you don't have to be good. When society says you can treat people like dirt. No, Jesus says you need to treat people with goodness, benevolence, and caring. And then three attitudes linked to self. Faithfulness. Now this word is translated faith, and it can mean the faith of the the Christian faith. It can mean having faith in Jesus for salvation, but here it's talking about reliability. Be faithful in your service to God. Be faithful in your walk with each other. Be a person of trust. Be a person who is faithful in word and deed. Faithfulness. Gentleness. This is probably the hardest of the words to actually translate. In the Beatitudes, when you read, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the world. The adjective meek is built off of this noun, which means gentleness. It's the same idea. And it was originally used to describe a a wild animal that's been tamed. A stallion that has all of the power it ever has had, but now it responds to its master and does whatever the master wants. It is the idea of submissiveness. Having a teachable spirit before God and being under His control, following Him. And then finally, He ends with self control. Now, keep in mind, all of these are fruit of the Spirit, which means we cannot do it ourselves. So, Paul's not just talking about willpower here. He's talking about self-control that becomes possible because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and empowering you. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses the image of Christians as athletes who have to be well-disciplined in order to run the race or box. And he says, a Christian runner without self-control is like a racer who's running, going back and forth all over the track. He's like a boxer. Instead of attacking his contestant, he's punching in the air, not doing anything. And Paul says, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He says that, I choose to subdue my own body. This, someone says, this is Paul's, the Christian overcoming of the flesh works through self-control, committing my life, myself, into the hands of God. And Paul says there are no law, there, there's no law against us. Well, folks, 
When you look at this, if we were living like that, we wouldn't need law. Because if I love you, I'm not going to hurt you. If I'm patient with you, I'm not going to attack you. If I'm bringing peace, I'm not your enemy. This is who we are supposed to be. And when we allow that to happen, when we open our hearts to God, to the move of the Spirit, we find power to oppose the flesh's calling. This is the other side of the cord. You, you can't do what you would do. When I am living by the power of the Spirit, the flesh cannot run roughshod over me. When the Spirit is in control of my life, I can have victory. John William McCormick, without any hesitation, once made the statement, no Christian is ever overcome by the desires of the flesh while walking by the Spirit. However, if his walk becomes sporadic or ceases, anything can happen and usually does. So, just as we have to crucify the flesh, we must decidedly choose to keep in step with the Spirit. Earlier, Paul said we need to live by the Spirit. Now he says to keep in step. And I know I've got a lot of former military and military here, and you guys will get this immediately. The words keep in step, or translated keep in step, is a military term. It's falling in line. It's standing in a row. It's marching in step, following the leader who's giving you the orders. In Greek philosophical circles, it was following the, the tenets of your, the philosopher you're studying under, what he says you need to do. Here it means conforming to Christ. Just so we put to death the old flesh, which by the way is a daily thing that we have to do. I can't crucify the flesh today and expect me to last in the next 10 years. Daily, Lord, learn what it means for me to die to Danny. Keeping in step with the Spirit means every day. Father, direct me, guide me, lead me in the path that you would give me. And if we, if we do, I, I noticed a few of you looked a little confused with verse 26. 26, some people believe actually belongs with the following verses. It's a transitional verse. But I think what Paul is saying, if you're living by the Spirit, you will not provoke each other. You will not be conceited. You will not be destroying one another. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's the choice ahead of us today. And notice, there's not a third alternative choice. Paul's just saying, we're either going to live under the sinful nature, or we're going to live and keep in step with the Spirit and experience the fruit of the Spirit. That's it. I can yield myself to God and allow Him to move in me and change me, or I can follow my own path. In an interview some time ago with Rolling Stone, actor Jeff Bridges was asked, all all of you folks who are of a certain mature age, you might want to consider this question for yourself, but he was asked what advice he wished he had received when he was at the age of 20. What do you wish somebody told you? And Bridges very honestly said, I got the advice, I just didn't take it. 
my dad, and his dad was Lloyd Bridges. My dad would say, it's all about habit, Jeff. You got to get into good habits. And Jeff Bridges, being a child of the age he was in, said, I said, no, dad, you got to live each moment. You got to live it as the first one and be fresh. To which Lloyd would reply, that's a wonderful thought, but that's not what we are. We are habitual creatures. It's all about developing good habits, coming into the grooves. And many years later, as he was experiencing some wisdom, he said, as I age, I can see his point. What you practice, that's what you become. So we have a choice today. What are we going to practice? As children of the living God, are we going to live by the Spirit or flesh? Are we going to allow all those sins that Paul listed that show complete and totally self-absorption All I really care about is me. Or are we going to look at the fruit that opens us up to the path of God? So if you decide, you know what, Danny? Thanks, but I'm really enjoying the flesh right now. Later on, when I get too old to enjoy it, I'll get right. Remember that the words of the flesh are destructive. And they'll not only lead to you ultimately having misery, they will lead to everybody else around you having misery. Are we going to keep in step with the Spirit of God? If so, if that's our heart desires to follow the Spirit, we need to remember that the fruit of the Spirit brings life in its fullness. So today, I'm challenging us. Today, let's make a choice to follow the path God has laid before us. Let us make a a decisive choice right here, right now. And remember, you've got to start all over again tomorrow. You may need to start over again later on in the day, but right here, right now. Lord, teach me what it means to say no to Danny. Teach me what it means to crucify my flesh And understand this is not what you want for me. Teach me to do what Paul said in Romans 6. Help me to count myself to be dead to sin. And then, let's choose to yield ourselves to the Spirit of God. Spirit, I can't do this on my own. I need you and your strength. So, won't you commit today Allow the vine to produce in you, his branch, the fruit he longs to build and make. As we bow our heads, I'm asking you to make that choice now.